few weeks ago, we got to sit down with one of the most interesting people in the Lobby family, Edgardo Tenrero. Now, Edgardo and I have been friends for a few years now, but, but hearing him lay out his story on this episode of The Biz was inspiring and insightful. It should also be a cautionary tale to us here in the United States. The Baton Rouge General, President and CEO, grew up in Venezuela in the 1970s during what he calls the heyday of democracy. I grew up from a, a tiny little cell uh, to, uh, to about 12 months old. Wow. Uh, so that's two years, I guess you could say, uh, <laughs> at, at Notre Dame. My, my dad was an engineer. He had recently graduated from, uh, from engineering school in Venezuela. Yeah. My mom went to a, a school run by Ursula Nunn's. Uh, who were from the U.S., and they told my dad, if you all go to the U.S., uh, you have to go to Notre Dame. That's the only school for you. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and so they got, you know, they, they got married, and uh, my dad ended up uh, doing a master's degree in engineering in Notre Dame, and I was born uh, while they were, uh, he was going to school uh, there for grad school. Um, and then I grew up uh, until I was 18 years old in Venezuela. At, uh, I guess I'll call it the heyday of uh, of, uh, of uh, Venezuela in terms of uh, democracy and, and economic development. It's, it's the 70s now, and uh, it's just sort of, to me, uh, a time that we'll never, <laughs> we will never go back to in terms of uh, prosperity and uh, freedom in, in that country, or it will take a long time for the country to get to that, that place. Um, I went back to Notre Dame for, uh, for school. It was the only school I applied to. Really? Uh, you know, they waited Fantastic. to the last minute. I remember it was, that was a risky move. Uh, and I kept calling admissions to say, hey, what's going on? I'm, where am I? Yeah, yeah, we got your application. It's been a year now. But <laughs> eventually they admitted me, I think, because I, I pester them so much. Um, and I also did my, um, my uh, postgraduate work there. I got a master's in finance. Uh, undergraduate was initially engineering, like my dad, but I pretty, pretty soon realized that I'm not, uh, I was not uh, uh, cut to be an engineer, and I did uh, economics and philosophy there. Uh, and then my, uh, my entrance into healthcare was also uh, almost by chance. Uh, uh, I was looking for a job. This is 1987. I thought I was going to go into investment banking. Uh, there was a big crash back in 87. Yes, there was. Some of you may, may remember that, your older listeners. Uh, and I was a uh, you know, 24-year-old kid. Uh, looking for jobs in investment banking, and, and there was none, very few to be had. Uh, I was in Naples, Florida. I interviewed with a bunch of different uh, companies and uh, ended up uh, at a hospital. I thought, I'll do that for a few months, and then I'll move to what I really want to do. And yeah. I really have never looked back, and I always have stayed in healthcare. Edgardo began his career with Baton Rouge General during the historic flood of 2016, what he now calls a black swan event. That's a theory in the finance world, a term that's commonly used, a metaphor for an unpredictable event characterized by extreme rarity with profound impact. We asked him about leading during such a crisis, and his answer was decentralized management that forces a CEO to, quote, stay out of the way, end quote. My travels through Louisiana way back, uh, I guess it was about 15 years ago, I didn't even notice Baton Rouge. I guess I noticed that I was crossing the Mississippi, but yeah. that, was, uh, that was it. So I, I ended up in, um, in a, a, a small town in south uh, uh, Texas uh, called Harlingen. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a border town along with Brownsville and McAllen. And there was a hospital there that I was very interested in because they were the first uh, hospital to apply an uh, uh, industrial term called Lean Six Sigma. Uh, at the time, it was only Six Sigma that Motorola and GE had developed uh, a 
adopted from, from the Japanese. And it was a first application into healthcare. And I always was very interested in that. And I knew that, that I wanted to learn more and more about that. And uh, as I was looking for a job, lo and behold, there was a chief operating officer of that uh, hospital uh, position open. And, uh, and I applied and I, and I got the job and I learned about uh, sort of in the internal efficiencies of, of hospital operations through that uh, sort of uh, uh, General Electric um, uh, Six Sigma program. And uh, two years later, a uh, recruiter called me to uh, see if I was interested in the COO job here in Baton Rouge uh, about 15 years ago. And specifically, they were looking at somebody who had experience in Six Sigma. Yeah. And, uh, and I was chosen. And, and, I, and you know, by then, uh, I'd, had been, I'd been in the, in the system for, uh, for about six or seven years. And I brought those uh, techniques into, uh, into, in, into the hospital system. Uh, and, but some of them have been uh, techniques that I've learned uh, by reading uh, interesting authors. And, and uh, one of the interesting authors that, I, that I've read is a guy by the name of Nassim Taleb. Uh, he's uh, sort of a statistician, mathematician, but he's applied uh, a lot of that knowledge into, into, uh, into, in, into a variety of areas. Uh, one of them is potentially healthcare or, and, and business. So he's, uh, if you've now probably learned or, or heard the term black swan, yeah. uh, well, that he was the one who coined that as, a, as, a, as a basically a way of, uh, of telling you that there are events out there that are unpredictable, that yeah. nobody can predict. Uh, their way, their their six, seven standard deviations on one side of the bell cu- uh, curve, and they're it was unpredictable. Like, got like ten of those in the last. Well, like eighty-seven. Years, right? I was just talking about the crash of eighty-seven. Yeah. He made all his money on on on. He was a stock uh, uh, guy, trading guy, and he made all his money in 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 the in eighty-seven in the crash. Um, um, and, and so anyway, he talks about how do you make a, an organization anti-fragile. Yeah. Uh, it's not just robust, which resists, uh, you know, stress, but it's one that becomes stronger with stress. And so I always thought, you know, how do I, how do I stress internally my system, uh, and my team, to make sure that when unexpected events happen, like the flood, we're ready to react, uh, and actually after the flood, can we be stronger than yeah. we were before the flood? And so I, those, those, the, the, you know, that kind of, uh, I don't know, philosophy. It was already in the DNA of the organization, uh, and it's almost like the opposite of what you typically think a CEO does. I don't, I don't, I, you know, it, it. You make the organization stronger by making sure that everybody who's inside the organization is working at the maximum of their ability, mm-hmm. without central control and, and direction. Right. They're standing on their own two legs. But exactly. They understand the culture and the mission. And they're able to implement they, and execute. A exactly. Level. They know. Yeah. They know the mission. They they know the, you know where we're going. And then your job is to kind of at that point stay out of the way because as a CEO, there's no way that you can know everything that needs to happen uh, to make sure that you're uh, that you're moving in the, in that direction at, at a very fast uh, at a very fast pace. And, and that's, that's- We talked more about this concept in terms of leadership style, and Edgardo explained this similarity between capitalism and good management, not just in business. No bureaucrat at a central office could know all the intricacies of of what's happening at the lowest level of of the economy, and I think it's true of an organization. And then that gives people the the chance to show and display what they're best at, And, and your role then is more identifying talent Nurturing cha- talent 
and creating the systems and structures that, the, the, that allow that talent to, uh, to flourish. And, uh, and then when the flood happens, you simply put a command center in, in place and, and you let the team take over. Yeah. At that point, you're, you're more of a nuisance. You're out there cheering people on and, and, and breaking barriers if you have to break them. But for the most part, you have to step back. Uh, and again, that's, it's interesting that I learned that not only by studying economics, but also that's a lean Six Sigma approach that the Japanese uh, you know, implemented with Toyota production systems and all of that, which is it's a team bottom up that, 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 you know, that assures that your processes have quality. And um, I'll never forget one of the first time, the th- times that I had a, an opportunity to work at this hospital in, in Harlingen. It was called Valley Baptist. And um, we had to solve a complex problem. We brought the team together. I was the executive sponsor. And I open up, you know, here's what we need to do. And then the, the black belt tells me, and now you leave the room. And I was like, wait, hold on a second. You know, I'm the chief operating officer. <laughs> I'm supposed to, no, no, you leave the room and you come back in seven hours and we'll show you what we, what our, what our plan is. And you have a chance to veto it or modify it, but, but it's going to be the team's idea, not your idea. And that was a big shift for me. Yeah. Of, of, of letting go of, of, of control and, and recognizing. That's, and that's a challenge yeah. that many CEOs yeah. wouldn't wouldn't go for. I mean, you know, it, the tempting is to do the job well, you have to be on exactly. top of everything. As exactly. To trust and, and exactly. That. Exactly. And, of course, we see this in all aspects of, of, of life. That's uh, right. I mean, if, you, if you've been following the uh, Ukrainian um, uh, war with Russia and the invasion, you realize that, that the Ukrainian, you know, more, much more mobile – uh, because you know, but just by, yeah. by because they have to, they have no choice, uh, yeah. exactly. And the Russians much more top down, and and that didn't work. Like many industries in America, Edgardo believes it's imperative we keep our healthcare system independent, and he's seen firsthand why that's critical. The issue that you know, again, the, I think the way to protect it is by remaining remaining as independent as mm-hmm. possible. Uh, and so the, the the goal is to protect that care model, and if you. If you put barriers and, 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 and systems and structures in place to protect the physician from a lot of the red tape, then your system becomes attractive to a certain portion of the physician community that wants and thrives on that, on, on that independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's, you know, that's the secret sauce. I mean, it's not secret, but that's That's your code formula, yeah. That's, that, that, that's it. And to the extent that you do that, you attract the physicians and the better physicians you attract and retain, uh, automatically they come with, with patients, because patients trust you know that, that physician yeah. and then the healthcare system in which they in, in which they uh, they work. And so, if we didn't protect the physician from the these outside influences, then then I think it, 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 it we wouldn't be where where we are today. And I'll give you an example of one. Okay. Uh, for the last ten years, we've been hearing value based care, accountable care organizations. In essence, you know, the old HMO from the 70s and yeah. 80s and, and 90s, but under different, with different lipstick, I call it, right. because it's still the same. You're trying to control the relationship between the patient and the physician uh, in order to lower costs. And, and I, 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 don't, I don't think that that model is going to work. And the reason is because it begins to corrupt, uh, you know, that sacred space between the patient and the, and the physician. And, and we already know that uh, HMOs, there was a backlash against HMOs in the 90s because people wanted choice. Right. And, uh, and so we don't call it HMO anymore. We call it a variety of other uh, terms. 
but it's the same game. And so I go counter to that, uh, to that, uh, you know, to that, uh, you know, narrative that is in, in, in the marketplace right now, coming from both the federal government and the insurance companies. And I try to protect it. Now I'm going to play the game as best as I can. If they come to me to tell me, hey, we can give you a quality incentive if you achieve the following uh, goals, and I'm going to go after those goals. Right. Because if you, if you have the type of culture that I was talking about yeah. earlier today and you're small enough, then you're nimble enough to change and quickly react to, what, to the, right. you know, what's happening on the marketplace. What happens, and not just in healthcare, but with any organization, the bigger that you become and the more vertical and horizontally integrated that you are, you know, you, 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 you're not, you, you can't really figure out how to allocate resources in an effective way because you don't have the pricing signal, okay, to determine whether or not you're making a good investment or not. And, and that, I mean, think about it, you know, how do I know if I am vertically and horizontally integrated that how much I should charge Department X for a service that Department Y is selling to Department X? It becomes, you know, it becomes right. difficult. But if I'm small enough, I'm buying that service from somebody else at a price. And so I'm able to allocate resources efficiently right. according to, you know, just basically that's how capitalism works. That's right. uh, you, you get a price signal that determines whether you're making money on something or not. And that's, and that's why I think getting, being smaller is more, more uh, long-term is going to be better than, than if I become, uh, you know, vertically and horizontally integrated into a large uh, large organization okay. for healthcare. Now, for other industries, it might be something different. For okay. other cities, it might be something different. And New Orleans is different than, than, than Baton Rouge. And, 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 is and, New Orleans different than Baton Rouge? I think I so. I learned about that. that. You, well, you know what? Did you I read that in that. a book too? I read that in a book. <laughs> it's called, it was called uh, Rising Tide. Yes, yes. And, and, uh, darn uh, uh, you yes. know, yeah, and, you know, somebody, you know, I was interested in, in the whole thing. And, and then all of a sudden I started noticing a little bit of a difference. And, a physician, uh, a friend of mine, uh, told me you got to read this book. If you want to understand Louisiana, you yeah. got to read the book. So I read the book and I realized, oh wow, this is why it's different. Yeah. Edgardo reflected on his teenage years in Venezuela, where his parents were heavily involved in politics, and the main forces at play were left-leaning political parties with very little free enterprise approach. He came to the United States with that same left-leaning foundation, but. After seeing in his own country what slowly evolved from nationalization to a full-blown socialist communist dictatorship and noticing seeds of that socialism here, he, he began to grow cautious and vigilant. I think that, that you know, when I reflect back on, on, on those years, my teenage years in Venezuela, my parents were very involved in politics and the, and the two main political forces in Venezuela at the time, I'm talking from 1958 mm -hmm. through, uh, through the mid to late 80s. Uh, were two political parties. It was the Christian Democrats uh, and it was the Social Democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, both Christian Democrats and Social Democrats have, are, are, are sort of, I would consider them left-wing um, uh, government intervention um, uh, approach to the economy uh, parties. Uh, the Christian Democrats are big in, in, uh, in Chile, in Central America, uh, Italy, uh, Germany, those are the main areas where the Christian Democrats have, and they have a philosophy and an approach. They use uh, Catholic uh, social uh, uh, teachings to guide their, their politics. But from an economic perspective, I consider them more of a, on, the, on the left side. In other words, 
uh, it's nationalizing industry, like oil was nationalized, uh, uh, and, and so was uh, the uh, iron uh, ore industry and the mm-hmm. aluminum industry. So the basic industries in Venezuela were, were nationalized by both parties, and they were both in agreement that that was the best, uh, the best approach. Of course, growing up in that era, I didn't even think that that was a bad thing. It was just, you know, it was very, we were very prosperous. because. So of that. that nationalization was taking place while you were growing up? There. Yes. So you that, began that happened. more of a market-driven economy that turned into a nationalized uh, yeah, uh, Let's uh, Yes. Well, mm-hmm. we certainly, it, let's say that it accelerated that, sure. that, that, that okay. process. So Venezuela never really had a pro, uh, a strong uh, pro-free enterprise uh, sort of capitalist approach to, to things for a variety of reasons that, that we won't go into, but that's a, that was a, the environment in which I, I grew. When I came to the U.S., um, I, was, I would consider myself uh, more of a left-wing uh, person. I, you know, I went to college, and, and I was really into the whole sort of justice uh, you know, approach to things, even from an economic perspective. But then I had my first job in healthcare, and it was basically getting patients who qualified for Medicaid into Medicaid, um, and that was my first job at, at the hospital. And pretty soon I recognized that, wow, we have a system at the time in the, in the, in the, in the U.S. where the, the, if you're single, a single mom, the more kids that you have, the more money that you get from, mm-hmm. from the state. And I thought, that's, that's, something's not right. Mm-hmm. And immediately began to question, you know, why are we setting up a welfare system that encourages the behavior that we ought to be discouraging? And, 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 and the more I thought about that, the more I realized, well, something's not, not right. And then simultaneously, as I was happening at my work here, I saw the deterioration of what was happening in, in, in Venezuela. And it basically, it, it was a race to see who could be more left-wing. Mm-hmm. And eventually, the population recognized that, hey, if you really want to be left-wing, then go ahead and actually elect somebody who's a full-blown socialist communist. And that was... a uh, uh, Mr. Chavez, uh, and uh, and and they did. They did a constitutional reform, and it was over. Uh, it's now, in essence, a you know sort of a left wing uh, you know dictatorship with all the negatives that come with that. Uh, the whole capital structure destroyed. Uh, our capacity to produce oil and refine oil destroyed, uh, and sort of a lot of uh, cronyism and corruption. Uh, that's that's what you get. And, and that's what we had. And so then, I moved back to the, to, you know, moving back to the U.S. environment, I began to see more and more of these sort of left-leaning, uh, you know, philosophies mm-hmm. uh, of, of governi- government intervention uh, by the by quote the left and quote the right. They both they both want to intervene in, in, in the sort of the direction of uh, uh, and centralizing power in, in Washington uh, for their own projects. Some more than others, some presidents more than others. It varies over time, but it's this relentless movement toward centralizing things in Washington and toward more and more government intervention. Ultimately, that worry is what caused Edgardo to become active in lobby. After he visited with us and shared his story, his concern, and his desire to be part of a team upholding the principles of free enterprise here in Louisiana. And I think that eventually destroys. Uh, the what's great about this country it may not happen right away it took you know 30 or 40 years in Venezuela but but I, I see that deterioration and it worries me so when I came to talk to you was, yeah. was basically to say wow I, I looked at your website and I knew from your 
prior CEO that I forget his name, but uh, I remember. Juno. Yes, I remember a couple of his speeches. Yeah. And I go, wow, this guy is really into mm-hmm. into sort of a free enterprise thing. And and then when I looked at your website, I realized, wow, no, this organization yeah. was built to uh, you know to promote a free enterprise, and it's at the yeah. core of your DNA. So I thought, well, I want to be a part of yeah. that because Absolutely. I think it, it matches. Um, you know my management philosophy, and uh, and I think that the the, the more uh, I guess people and CEOs who understand that uh, that that there, there's something there to be pro- that we need to protect. If you enjoyed our conversation with Edgardo, be sure to check out our other episodes of The Biz, where we profile interesting people doing great things all across Louisiana. You can listen wherever you get your podcast.